12, OSIS more or less analogous to the burning of a candle, the fact of luminosity appearing to be in certain cases directly under the control of the creature in which it is found, and the fact of its being manifested in many forms, as M. the Caterfages found, only one muscular contraction was taking place, would seem to favor the former view. On the other hand, it is against this view that the phosphorescence is often found to persist after the animal is dead, and even in the phosphorescent organs for a considerable time after they have been extracted from the body of the animal. In the glow worm the light goes on shining for some time after the death of the insect, and even when it has become completely extinguished it can be restored for a time by the application of a little moisture. Further, both Matusai and Fitson found that when the luminous substance was extracted from the insect it would keep on glowing for 30 or 40 minutes. In Thales the light is still more persistent, and it is found that when the dead body of this mollusk is placed in honey, it will retain for more than a year the power of emitting light when plunged in warm water. The investigations of recent years have rendered it more and more probable that the light exhibited by phosphorescent organisms is due to a chemical process somewhat analogous to that which goes on in the burning of a candle. This latter process is one of rapid oxidation. The particles of carbon supplied by the oily matter that feeds the candle become so rapidly combined with oxygen derived from the air that a considerable amount of light, along with heat, is produced thereby. Now. The phenomenon of phosphorescence in organic forms, whether living or dead, appears also to be due to a process of oxidation, but one that goes on much more slowly than in the case of a lighted candle. It is thus more closely analogous to what is observed in the element phosphorus itself, which owes its name meaning, light bearer, to the fact that when exposed to the air at ordinary temperatures it glows in the dark, in consequence of its becoming slowly combined with oxygen. At one time it was believed that the presence of oxygen was not necessary to the exhibition of phosphorescence in organic forms, but it has now been placed beyond doubt that this is a mistake. Oxygen has been proved to be indispensable, and hence we see a reason for the luminous organs in the glow worm being so intimately connected, as above mentioned, with the air tubes that ramify through the insect. This fact of itself might be taken as a strong indication of the chemical nature of the process to which phosphorescence is due but the problem has been made the subject of further investigations which had thrown more light upon it. It was long known that there were various inorganic bodies besides phosphorus which emitted a phosphorescent light in the dark, at least after being exposed to the rays of the sun, but it was not till quite recently that any organic compound was known to phosphoresce at ordinary temperatures. This discovery was made by a Polish chemist, named Bronilaus Radzisischki who followed it up with a long series of experiments on the phosphorescence of organic compounds, by which he was able to determine the conditions under which that phenomenon was exhibited. In all the substances investigated by him in which phosphorescence was introduced he found that three conditions were essential to its production, one that oxygen should be present, two that there should be an alkaline reaction in the phosphorescing mixture that island a reaction such as is produced on acids, and vegetable coloring matters by potash, soda and the other alkalis, and three that some kind of chemical action should take place. He found, moreover, that among the organic compounds that could be made to phosphoresce under these conditions were nearly all the fixed and ethereal oils. With reference to the phosphorescence of animals, this observation is important, for it has been shown in a great many cases that a fatty substance forms the main constituent in their luminous organs. This has long been known to be the case in the luminous insects belonging to the Lampyridae and Elateridae, as well as in the luminous centipedes, and the researches of Panseri, already referred to, 
on the luminous organs of many marine forms had shown that it holds good with regard to these also. We may, therefore, conclude that substances fitted to phosphoresce under the conditions determined by the experiments of Radzisishki are generally, and probably universally, present in the luminous organs of phosphorescent animals. Now, what is to be said as to the occurrence of these conditions? The access of oxygen is in all cases easy to account for, but it must also be shown how the alkaline reaction is to be produced. We need not expect to find in animal organisms potash, soda, ammonia, and the other common alkalis, but it was established by experiment that the alkaline organic compounds choline and neurin, which are present in animal tissues, would also serve to bring about the phenomenon of phosphorescence in the substances on which the experiments were made. Accordingly, it seems fair to conclude that when all these conditions for the production of phosphorescence in a chemical laboratory are present in animal organisms, the phenomenon, when observed in these, is exactly of the same nature as that which is produced artificially, by that it is meant that animal phosphorescence is attended, like the artificial phenomenon, by a slow chemical action, or in other words, that the phosphorescent light is due to a gradual process of oxidation. One curious circumstance has been discovered which lends still further probability to this explanation. It was mentioned above that among phosphorescent plants there are several species of agaricus. Now, from one species of this genus, though not indeed one of the phosphorescent species from A. muscaris there has been extracted a principle called amnesia, which is found to be identical with colon. In the light of the results derived from the investigations just referred to it is reasonable to draw the conclusion that, if sought for, this principle would likewise be found in the phosphorescent species in which the other conditions of phosphorescence are also present. On this theory of the production of the phenomenon now under consideration, the effect of shaking or of vital action in giving rise to or intensifying the exhibition of the light is accounted for by the fact that by these means fresh supplies of oxygen are brought into contact with the phosphorescent substance. The effect of ammonia on the light emitted by the sea slug Philorhobucephala is also fully explained. Ammonia being one of those alkaline substances which are so directly favorable to the exhibition of the phenomenon, nor is it difficult to account for the control which in some cases insects appear to have over the luminosity of the phosphorescent organs, exhibiting and withdrawing the light at will. It is not necessary to suppose that this is an immediate effect, a conversion of nerve force into a light, and a withdrawal of that force. The action of the creature's will may be merely in maintaining or destroying the conditions under which the light is manifested. It may, for example, have the power of withdrawing the supply of oxygen, and this supposition receives some countenance from the observation cited from Carby and Spence on the two captured glow worms, one of which withdrew its light, while the other kept it shining, but while doing so had the posterior extremity of the abdomen in constant motion but the animal may also have the power in another way of affecting the chemical conditions of the phenomenon. It may, for example, have the power of increasing or diminishing by some nervous influence the supply of the necessary alkaline ingredient, but if animal phosphorescence is really due to a process of slow oxidation, there is one singular circumstance to be noted in connection with it. Oxidation is a process that is normally accompanied by the development of heat. Even where no light is produced an increase of temperature regularly takes place when substances are oxidized. We ought, then, to expect such a rise of temperature when light is emitted by the phosphorescent organs of animals. But the most careful observations have shown that nothing of the kind can be detected. 
it was with a view to test this that Thanseri dissected out the luminous organs of so many specimens of colas. He selected this mollusk because it was so abundant in the neighborhood of Naples, where his experiments were made, and in making his experiments he made use of a thermopile, an apparatus by which, with the aid of electricity, much smaller quantities of heat can be indicated than by means of the most delicate thermometer. The organs remained luminous long after they were extracted, but no rise in temperature whatever could be found to accompany the luminosity. Many experiments upon different animals were made with similar negative results by means of the thermometer. The only explanation of this that can be given is probably to be found in the fact that the chemical process ascertained to go on in the phosphorescence of organic compounds on which experiments were made in the laboratory is an extremely slow one. The so-called phosphorescence of most inorganic bodies is one of a totally different nature from that exhibited in organic forms. The diamond shines for a time in the dark after it has been exposed to the sun, so do pieces of quartz when rubbed together, and powdered fluor spar when heated shines with considerable brilliancy. Various artificial compounds, such as sulfide of calcium cantons phosphorus, as it is called from the discoverer, sulfate of barium baloney stone, or baloney phosphorus, sulfide of strontium, etc. After being illuminated by the rays of the sun they give out in the dark a beautiful phosphorescence. Green blue, violet, orange, red, according to circumstances, the luminous paint which has recently attracted so much attention is of the same nature, in these cases what we have is either a conversion of heat rays into a light rays as in the powdered fluor spar, or the absorption and giving out again of sun rays, in the latter case the phenomenon is essentially the same as fluorescence, in which the dark rays of the solar spectrum beyond the violet are made visible. But we must now return to the other questions that have been started in relation to phosphorescence in animals. There has been much speculation as to the object of this light, and to the purposes it serves in nature. Probably no general answer can be given to this question. It is no doubt impossible to show why so many animals have been endowed with this remarkable property, but we may consider some of the effects which the possession of it has in different cases. In the first place. It will undoubtedly serve in many cases to afford light to enable the animal to see by. And in the lamp irony it would seem that the degree of luminosity is related to the development of the vision. In that family, according to the ref, H. Ascorum, the eyes are developed, as a rule, in inverse proportion to the luminosity. Where there is an ample supply of this kind of light the eyes are small, but where the light is insignificant the eyes are large by way of compensation. And moreover, where both eyes and light are small, then the antennae are large and feathery, so that the deficiency in the sense of sight is made up for by an unusual development in the organs of touch, but it is nonetheless certain that the presence of this light cannot always be designed to serve this purpose, for many of the animals so endowed are blind, the phosphorescent centipedes are without eyes, like all the other members of the genus Geophilus to which they belong, and probably the majority of phosphorescent marine forms are likewise destitute of organs of sight. Another suggestion is that the light derived from these marine forms, and especially from deep-sea alcyonarians, is what enables the members of the deep-sea fauna that are possessed of eyes which are always enormously enlarged to see, such as the suggestion of Dr. Carpenter, Sir Wavell Thompson, and Mr. Gwyn Jeffries, and it is possible that this actually is one of the effects of the phosphorescent property, but if so, it remains to inquire how the forms endowed with it came to be possessed of a powerful in that way to other forms, but not to themselves, according to the Darwinian doctrine of development. 
The powers that are developed in different organisms by the process of natural selection are such as are full to themselves and not to others, unless incidentally, this consideration has led to another suggestion, namely, that the property of phosphorescence serves as a protection to the forms possessing it, driving away enemies in one way or another, it may be by warning them of the fact that they are unpalatable food, as is believed to be the case with the colors of certain brilliantly colored caterpillars, it may be in other ways. In Carbian Spence one case is recorded in which the phosphorescence of the common phosphorescent centipede Geophilus electricus was actually seen apparently to serve as a means of defense against an enemy. Mr. Shepard, says that authority, once noticed a scarabuse running round the last mentioned insect when shining, as if wishing, but afraid to attack it. In the case of the jellyfishes, it has been pointed out that their well-known urticating or stinging powers would make them at least unpleasant, if not dangerous food for fishes, and that consequently the luminosity by which so many of them are characterized at night may serve at once as a warning to predatory fishes and as a protection to themselves. The experience of the unpleasant properties of many phosphorescent animals may likewise have taught fishes to avoid all forms possessing this attribute, even though many of them might be quite harmless. Lastly, it has been suggested that the phosphorescence in the female glowworm may be designed to attract the male, and that it will actually have this effect may readily be taken for granted. Observation shows that the male glowworm is very apt to be attracted by a light. Gilbert White of Selborne mentions that they, attracted by the light of the candles, came into his parlor. Another observer states that by the same light he captured as many as 40 male glowworms in one night. Comets from Marvels of the Heavens by Camille Filet and A.R. Ireland, Javien's Vizanonker and Grande Nouvelle, News Levance, Endormant, Madame, Acap Bell, UN Mon President de News a Passe Tout du Long, Established Chutout au Traffers de Notre Turbulon, et Silute en Camin Rencontre Notre Terre, Lute et Brissi en Morsiou Comber, Noyer, This announcement of Tresonins to Philomendi, who begins the parody on the fears caused by the appearance of comets would not have been a parody four or five centuries ago. These tailed bodies, which suddenly come to light up the heavens, were for long regarded with terror, like so many warning signs of divine wrath. Men had always thought themselves much more important than they really are in the universal order, they have had the vanity to pretend that the whole creation was made for them, whilst in reality the whole creation does not suspect their existence. The earth we inhabit is only one of the smallest worlds, and therefore it can scarcely be for it alone that all the wonders of the heavens, of which the immense majority remains hidden from it, were created, in this disposition of man to see in himself the center and the end of everything. It was easy indeed to consider the steps of nature as unfolded in his favor, and if some unusual phenomenon presented itself, it was considered to be without doubt a warning from heaven. If these illusions had had no other result than the amelioration of the more timorous of the community one would regret these ages of ignorance, but not only were these fancied warnings of no use, seeing that once the danger passed, man returned to his former state, but they also kept up among people imaginary terrors, and revived the fatal resolutions caused by the fear of the end of the world, when one fancies the world is about to end, and this has been believed for more than a thousand years. No solicitude is felt in the work of improving this world, and, by the indifference or disdain into which one falls, periods of famine and general misery are induced which at certain times have overtaken our community. Why use the wealth of a world which is going to perish? Why work, be instructed, or rise in the progress of the sciences or arts? Much better to forget the world, 
and absorb oneself in the barren contemplation of an unknown life. It is thus that ages of ignorance weigh on man, and thrust him further and further into darkness, while science makes known by its influence on the whole community, its great value, and the magnitude of its aim. The history of a comet would be an instructive episode of the great history of the heavens, and it could be brought together the description of the progressive movement of human thought, as well as the astronomical theory of these extraordinary bodies. Let us take, for example, one of the most memorable and best known comets, and give an outline of its successive passages near the Earth. Like the planetary worlds, comets belong to the solar system, and are subject to the rule of the star king. It is the universal law of gravitation which guides their path, solar attraction governs them, as it governs the movement of the planets and the small satellites. The chief point of difference between them and the planets island that their orbits are very elongated, and, instead of being nearly circular, they take the elliptical form. In consequence of the nature of these orbits, the same comet may approach very near the Sunday and afterwards travel from it to immense distances. Thus, the period of the comet of 1680 has been estimated at 3,000 years. It approaches the Sunday so as to be nearer to it than our moon is to us, whilst it recedes to a distance 853 times greater than the distance of the Earth from the Sun. On the 17th of December, 1680, it was at its perihelion that island at its greatest proximity to the Sun, it is now continuing its path beyond the Neptunian orbit. Its velocity varies according to its distance from the solar body. At its perihelion it travels thousands of leagues per minute, at its aphelion it does not pass over more than a few yards. Its proximity to the sun and its passage near that body caused Newton to think that it received a heat 28,000 times greater than that we experience at the summer solstice, and that this heat being 2,000 times greater than that of red-hot iron, an iron globe of the same dimensions would be 50,000 years entirely losing its heat. Newton added that in the end comets will approach so near the sun that they will not be able to escape the preponderance of its attraction, and that they will fall one after the other into this brilliant body, thus keeping up the heat which it perpetually pours out into space, such is the deplorable end assigned to comets by the author of the Principia, an end which makes to Le Breton say to Aretif, an immense comet, already larger than Jupiter, was again increased in its path by being blended with six other dying comets. Thus displaced from its ordinary route by these slight shocks, it did not pursue its true elliptical orbit, so that the unfortunate thing was precipitated into the devouring center of the Sunday, it is said, added he, that the poor comet, thus burned alive, sent forth dreadful cries. It will be interesting, then, in a double point of view, to follow a comet in its different passages in sight of the Earth. Let us take the most important in astronomical history the one whose orbit has been calculated by Edmund Halley, and which was named after him. It was in 1682 that this comet appeared in its greatest brilliancy, accompanied with a tail which did not measure less than 32 millions of miles, by the observation of the path which it described in the heavens, and the time it occupied in describing it. This astronomer calculated its orbit and recognized that the comet was the same as that which was admired in 1531 and 1607, and which ought to have reappeared in 1759. Never did scientific prediction excite a more lively interest. The comet returned at the appointed time, and on the 12th of March, 1759, reached its perihelion. Since the year 12 before the Christian era, it had presented itself 24 times to the Earth. It was principally from the astronomical annals of China that it was possible to follow it up to this period. 
Its first memorable appearance in the history of France is that of 837, in the reign of Louis de Bonnier, an anonymous writer of chronicles of that time, named The Astronomer, gave the following details of this appearance, relative to the influence of the comet on the imperial imagination, during the holy days of the solemnization of Easter, a phenomenon ever fatal, and of gloomy foreboding, appeared in the heavens, as soon as the emperor, who paid attention to these phenomena, received the first announcement of it, he gave himself no rest until he had called a certain learned man and myself before him, as soon as I arrived, he anxiously asked me what I thought of such a sign, I asked time of him, in order to consider the aspects of the stars, and to discover the truth by their means, promising to acquaint him on the morrow, but the emperor, persuaded that I wished to gain time, which was true, in order not to be obliged to announce anything fatal to him, said to me, go on the terrace of the palace and return at once to tell me what you have seen, for I did not see the star last evening, and you did not point it out to me, but I know that it is a comet, tell me what you think it announces to me, then scarcely allowing me time to say a word, he added, there is still another thing you keep back, it is that a change of reign and the death of a prince are announced by this sign, and as I advanced the testimony of the prophet, who said, fear not the signs of the heavens as the nations fear them, the prince with his grand nature, and the wisdom which never forsook him, said, we must not only fear him who has created both us and the star, but as this phenomenon may refer to us, let us acknowledge it as a warning from heaven, Louis de Bonnier gave himself and his court to fasting and prayer, and built churches and monasteries, he died three years later, in 840, and historians have profited by this slight coincidence to prove that the appearance of the comet was a harbinger of death. The historian, Raoul Glader, added later, these phenomena of the universe are never presented to man without surely announcing some wonderful and terrible event. Halley's Comet again appeared in April, 1066, at the moment when William the Conqueror invaded England. It was pretended that it had the greatest influence on the fate of the Battle of Hastings, which delivered over the country to the Normans, a contemporary poet, alluding probably to the English diadem with which William was crowned had proclaimed in one place, that the comet had been more favorable to William than nature had been to Caesar, the latter had no hair, but William had received some from the comet, a monk of Malmaisbury apostrophized the comet in these terms, here thou art again, thou cause of the tears of many mothers, it is long since I have seen thee, but I see thee now, more terrible than ever, thou threatenest my country with complete ruin, in 1455, the same comet made a more memorable appearance still, the Turks and Christians were at war. The West and the East seemed armed from head to foot on the point of annihilating each other. The crusade undertaken by Pope Calix Jusiri, against the invading Saracens, was waged with redoubled ardor on the sudden appearance of the star with the flaming tail. Mahomet II took Constantinople by storm, and raised the siege of Belgrade. But the Pope having put aside both the curse of the comet, and the abominable designs of the Muslims, the Christians gained the battle and vanquished their enemies in a bloody fight. The angels to the sound of bells dates from these ordinances of Calix Jusiri, referring to the comet, in his poem on astronomy, Daru, of the French Academy, describes this episode in eloquent terms, Un otter mahomediti hilden bras puissant amours de Constantine arboral croissant, old Danubit on southeast trouble o brut disarms, Logris established danzels first, all Europe established in alarms, et pour commode horror. Lester o visage ardent to southeast sails to few vehicle rear lochident. 
Opide de Southeast Sotils, Quil Northeast Sorit Defendra, Calixt, Lyle and Plurus, Alfront Convert Descendra, Conjure Locomet, Object de Tonte de Froid, Regard Version L. Siru, Pontife, Et Leftoy, Raster Power Suits a Course, Et Alfred Huniata Revolvenker, Quitombasus Belgrade, Dans L. Siru Sependent Al Globe Suspendu, Parlolo General Jemais Retnu, Ignore L's Terrors, L'existence Tyrone, Et Loter Putitra, Et Jusqua Nam Dilhumi, Dilhumi, Itra Crigital, Atomi Ambidiu, Qui tremble sus un preter et qui le dans el siru. This ancient comet witnessed many revolutions in human history, at each of its appearances, even in its later ones, in 1682, 1759, 1835, it was also presented to the earth under the most diverse aspects, passing through a great variety of forms, from the appearance of a curved saber, as in 1456, to that of a misty head, as in its last visit, moreover, this is not an exception to the general rule, for these mysterious stars have had the gift of exercising a power on the imagination which plunged it in ecstasy or trouble. Swords of fire, bloody crosses, flaming daggers, spears, dragons, fish, and other appearances of the same kind, were given to them in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Comets like those of 1577 appear, moreover, to justify by their strange form the titles with which they are generally greeted. The most serious writers were not free from this terror. Thus, in a chapter on celestial monsters, the celebrated surgeon, Ambroise Pear, described the comet of 1528 under the most vivid and frightful colors. This comet was so horrible and dreadful that it engendered such great terror to the people, that they died, some with fear, others with illness. It appeared to be of immense length, and of blood color, that its head was seen the figure of a curved arm holding a large sword in the hand as if it wished to strike. At the point of the sword there were three stars, and on either side was seen a great number of hatchets, knives, and swords covered with blood, amongst which were numerous hideous human faces, with bristling beards and hair. The imagination has good eyes when it exerts itself. The great and strange variety of cometary aspects is described with exactitude by Father Susiet in his Latin poem on comets. Most of them, says he, shine with fires interlaced like thick hair, and from this they have taken the name of comets. One draws after it the twisted folds of a long tail, another appears to have a white and bushy beard, this one throws a glimmer similar to that of a lamp burning during the night, that one, O Titan, represents thy resplendent face, and this other, O Phoebe, the form of thy nascent horns, there are some which bristle with twisted serpents. Shall I speak of those armies which have sometimes appeared in the air? of those clouds which follow as it were along a circle, or which resemble the head of Medusa, have there not often been seen figures of men or savage animals, often, in the gloom of night, lighted up by these sad fires, the horrible sound of worms is heard, the clashing of swords which meet in the clouds, the ether furiously resounding with fearful din which crush the people with terror, all comets had a melancholy light, but they had not all the same color, some had a leaden color, others that of flame or brass, the fires of some have the redness of blood, others resemble the brightness of silver. Some again are azure, others have the dark and pale color of iron. These differences come from the diversity of the vapors which surround them, or from the different manner in which they receive the sun's rays. Do you not see in our fires, that various kinds of wood produce different colors? Pines and firs give a flame mixed with thick smoke, and throw out little light. That which rises from sulfur and thick bitumen is bluish. Lighted straw gives out sparks of a reddish color. The large olive, 
laurel, ash of Parnassus, etc. Trees which always retain their sap, throw a whitish light similar to that of a lamp. Thus, comets whose fires are formed of different materials, each take and preserve a color which is peculiar to them. Instead of being a cause of fear and terror, the variety and variability of the aspect of comets ought rather to indicate to us the harmlessness of their nature. The total solar eclipse of 1883 on astronomers' voyage to Fairyland, from the Atlantic Monthly, May, 1890, by Professor E. S. Holden, in 1883 calculations showed that a solar eclipse of unusually long duration 5 minutes, 20 seconds would occur in the South Pacific Ocean. The track of the eclipse lay south of the equator, but north of Tahiti. There were in fact only two dots of coral islands on the charts in the line of totality. Caroline Island, and 150 miles west Flint Island longitude 150 west, latitude 10 south. Almost nothing was known of either of these minute points. The station of the party under my charge sent out by the United States government under the direction of the National Academy of Sciences was to be Caroline Islands. Every inch of that island seven miles long, a mile or so broad is familiar now, but it is almost ludicrous to recollect with what anxiety we poured over the hydrographic charts and sailing instructions of the various nations, to find some information, however scanty, about the spot which was to be our home for nearly a month. All that was known was that this island had formerly been occupied as a guano station. There was a landing then, after the personnel of the party had been decided on. There were the preparations for its subsistence to be looked out for. How to feed 17 men for 21 days. Fortunately the provisions that we took, and the fresh fish caught for us by the natives, just sufficed to carry us through with comfort and with health. In March of 1883 we sailed from New York, and about the same time a French expedition left Europe bound for the same spot. From New York to Panama, from Panama to Alima, were our first steps. Here we joined the United States steamship. 